Hello and welcome to Making of a Historian, the podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to study for his comprehensive exams. And today we're going to be starting a new mini-series that I haven't actually titled yet. I will uh, title it when I name this episode. It is a little bit less exciting than my last mini-series. This mini-series is just a bunch of dry-run questions that I might get asked for one of my lists, particularly my list on the 18th century. The 18th century is actually my main area of expertise. I know I seem to talk a lot about the 19th century on this podcast. I don't know why. I I think that's because I've been more focused on the stuff that I've been reading that's been novel, and so that's the stuff about the 19th century that that is just kind of new to me. The 18th century is more my academic home. My uh, research uh, takes place in the 17th and 18th century, mostly with a little bit of 19th century stuff. I really think that the big changes that I'm interested in happen in the 18th century. It is where I feel most at home. And because of that, I feel like I should have a pretty good mastery of the different things that I have to uh, uh, have a mastery of during the exam. So for the next nine episodes, I'm going to uh, present nine different questions that I might get asked in the oral exam and then give an extended answer. Now, the actual answer that I have to give in the exam is going to be much shorter. It'll have to be a lot tighter, and then I'll have to expect the professor who asked me it to grill me on particular things to have some sort of conversation. So this first question that I'm going to answer is about demography and agriculture. And it is, describe and account for the change in British population over the long 18th century. So I'm going to start out by telling you why this is an important question. I don't know about you, but whenever anybody talks about demography and agriculture, I kind of get a little bit, you know, bored. I don't pay a lot of attention. Uh, They seem like dry, quantitative, kind of fussy fields, not incredibly interesting. But I think that demography and agriculture is incredibly important to the story of the long 18th century. One of the key reasons why is that it helps us to see what makes the long 18th century different. And it helps us to really rein in that difference, to let us talk about that difference without making too much of it. So the big thing is that if you looked at a graph of British population from, say, uh, 1650 to 1900, what you would notice is a pattern that you will see in a lot of different graphs. It goes up. It is not a hockey stick graph. It is not that gigantic graph of modernity, although it would be a hockey stick graph if you, you know, condensed it a lot. Instead, what you see is slow but steady growth. And this might not seem too unusual in an area of fast and steady growth. But it was. This is one of the great mysteries of, I think, history. In the 18th century, in Britain, you get both a sustained growth in the population and a sustained growth of the economy. And this is relatively unusual. Usually when the population increases, the economy does worse. Because people are working at, you know, more marginal things. 
But here you get finally a breakout, a breakthrough. Something changes. So let's see what that might be. So first, let's just talk about population. The long-term view is that throughout the history of, the, uh, of England, England itself probably has a ceiling of population at about 5.5 million. From like the Romans to, let's say, the 17th century. Now, there are times due to wars and diseases and disruptions when the population goes far below that, of course. However, uh, after the 1750s, we finally get English population growing above this 5.5 million mark and staying above that 5.5 million mark. So I'm just going to give you some statistics. These are about Britain as a whole, not uh, England, so they're going to be a little bit higher because we're taking into account uh, Wales and Scotland and Ireland. So in 1700, the population of the British Isles was 6.2 million. In 1750, it was 7.2 million. In 1800, it had jumped to 10.6 million. In 1850, this was now 20 million. The population had doubled in 50 years. In 1870, it was 25 million. This was dramatic, but it was not sudden. This was a slow growth in population where annual rates of population growth uh, hovered between half a percent and one percent generally. So let's now talk about another big change in uh, demographics, and that is urbanization. We're going to talk about this more throughout uh, uh, the uh, uh, list, so we are not going to focus on the whys and hows, but we're just going to talk about the changing structure of where people lived. One of the strange stories is that urbanization also increased. Now, British urban patterns were very distinctive, uh, un different from, from other European countries. They are more along the lines of a third world uh, style population pattern where you have a single really, really, really big city and then a lot of significantly smaller cities. Uh, this is similar to Australia, if you've ever been to Australia. In Australia, each state has one or two really big cities, and then every other city is kind of, you know, not as big. Um, compare this with the Netherlands in the uh, 17th century. In the Netherlands, you might think that everything is dominated by Amsterdam, but there's actually a ton of uh, quite large and prosperous and effective cities, as well as Amsterdam. Amsterdam is not the only game in town. In Britain, London is the only game in town. Um, in 1600, London is 13 times bigger than next biggest city. In 1700, it was 19 times bigger. Um, London was so big that from 1600 to 1700, 80% of the country's natural increase, that is the number of people born that are you know more than the current population, went to London. One in seven people in the 18th century lived in London at some point in their time. After 1700, there's a little bit of a pause where uh, absolute levels of population in London go up, but relative levels stay stable for about, I think, 70 years. But what you see at this time is a spread of urbanization in general. Um, in 1700, 17% uh, of Britain lives in a city. In 1750, that's 21%. In 1800, you reach 27%, and in 
And then by 1850, you reach about half of all people live in the city. Now let's talk about the causes of these peculiar things, having a sustained population growth in an urbanizing environment. Now, there's been a lot of debate about what's important, about what actually causes this. Uh, it used to be that people thought that uh, the increase in population was just due to limits on mortality. That was basically saying, look, people stopped starving to death as much. But now, with when demography is a bit more advanced, when we have computers that are able to crunch all of the numbers, we understand that it's not simply uh, a case that people are dying less frequently. What seems to be happening throughout this long period of population growth is that people are actually tailoring their fertility based on their economic situation. And here, to break the fourth wall a bit, I'm thinking to myself, do I really want to go into uh, British marriage patterns right now? And I'm going to say no. Uh, I might save that for later, but I, I know that well enough that I don't want to bore you about it. And I have a feeling that this is a little bit of a dry podcast, so I'm going to be uh, uh, moving on. So let's look at this problem from a different angle. If I'm saying that British people tailored uh, the amount of kids that they had to the economic situation that they could expect to have, then we have to look for the source of population growth in the economy. If people were having more kids, then we have to think, well, okay, the economy is doing a bit better. Now, Britain in the 18th century, even though it was urbanizing, was still largely an agricultural economy. And so to explain this change, let's look at something that's called the agricultural revolution. This term uh, ex ex includes two big things. First, an expansion of agriculture out into new places like Fenlands and uh, previously, you know, crummy areas that could now be farmed because of new farming methods and a broader increase in the productivity of land. We can just, you know, see this by one figure. Between 1700 and 1850, agricultural output increased two and a half times. So there's two strands of thought about why this happened. The first is that it happened because of technology, and the second is that it happened because of capitalism. I'm going to explain each in turn. So the old story was that the increase in agricultural productivity happened because people did things in new ways on farms. You would hear names like Jethro Tull, who invented the seed drill, which is as interesting as it sounds, Turnip Townsend, who popularized planting turnips on fallow ground, which uh, did things like create nitrogen fertilizer and provide food for horses, Arthur Young, who is this, you know, uh, countryside trotting agricultural journalist who spread a lot of innovative agricultural practices, most notably triennial crop rotation of the Norfolk method. Um, and the general outcome of this, the general trend, is that all of these new ways of doing things broke out of old closed circuits of agriculture. Let's take the big thing, um, the Norfolk-style triennial crop rotation. I know this sounds so boring, but I'm going to try to make it interesting. The problem with growing crops is that uh, they leach the soil of nitrogen. 
the nitrogen cycle uh, is kind of hard to uh, uh, sustain. If you have a, a fast-growing plant like wheat, um, it will leach the nitrogen out of the soil, and you need to leave it fallow for a year or two before it's usable again. Um, you might just let weeds grow, or you might let animals go through it and poop and add their poop-filled nitrogen to the soil. The big thing in the Norfolk-style triennial crop rotation is that instead of just leaving the ground fallow, people learn to plant new kinds of crops in there. Clover, which because of an interesting um, effect of bacteria in the roots, actually fixes nitrogen to the soil. Uh, and it has an added benefit of being a feed for horses and cattle, which will, you know, get big and strong and poop in the fields and further, uh, you know, fertilize it. Or turnips, which uh, had a similar effect and also helped with weeding. What this did is that it helped to expand the scope of British agriculture. It helped to uh, allow people to both have uh, plants on their property, but also keep animals. And this is a lot more important than you think, because if you're able to employ a horse, you're able to do a lot more stuff. Replacement of oxen with horses is a huge improvement. I have details of it in my notes, but uh, horses have, I think, about the amount of work in them that seven people do. So if you're able to feed a horse on your farm, you're able to do a ton more. The other end of uh, this improvement uh, looks at what might be called agricultural capitalism. And like everything that has the word capitalism in it, uh, depending on your politics, you either think it was an awesome thing that happened because people let loose the bounds of the free market, or it was an awful thing because people let loose the bounds of the free market. The onus is to explain this peculiar situation that at the same time as output was increasing, the population of people in agriculture was decreasing. Some more statistics for you. In 1500, three quarters of all people lived uh, and worked in agriculture. In 1700, this was about half. In 1800, it was only a third, and in 1850, it was a fifth. This is really weird if you think at the same time, agriculture is at the most, you know, highest output it's ever been in the entire history of Britain. So you have to explain that mystery. The usual story is called the enclosure movement. Before, let's say, the 17th century, a lot of agricultural land was common land. It was farmed by groups of people or used as pasturage for uh, people's cows. This was really important because if you had a cow, a, a single cow for one year could provide the annual salary of half of the laborer. So if you had enough agricultural land to keep a cow, you could your family could do a lot better. However, starting in the 18th century goes the old story. Capitalists started to enclose land. They would get special acts of parliament made that would literally allow them to build fences around common land and claim them as their personal property. Because of this, they were they had the incentive to improve the landscape, to do all of these high-effort things like Norfolk triennial crop rotation, draining Fenland, and stuff like that, that we know increases agricultural output. But they also kicked people off of the land. 
the big movement here is uh, the, the move from um, custom to criminality. Old things like keeping animals on the commons, hunting, gleaning, which means going through uh, agricultural areas and picking up the, the harvest after it's done, um, start to get made illegal, which means that a lot of people who kind of lived on the margins who weren't doing as well off lost a lot of the little bits and pieces of prosperity that allowed them to get by. If they're making ends meet, there's simply fewer ends around. One of the reasons why this is important is that it pushes people off of the land and into the cities, where they become the industrial proletariat. If I had uh, some sort of production, I would have some like doom, doom, doom um, sound effect when I said the industrial proletariat. However, this story has a number of things that are a little off about it. Um, first is that the real big age of enclosures is not the 18th century like we used to think, it's the 17th century. In the 17th century, a quarter of all of the country gets enclosed. In the 18th century, this is only 13%. In the uh, 19th century, it is 11%. And furthermore, um, detailed studies of agricultural productivity show that enclosed lands don't actually have higher productivity than unenclosed lands, which makes the actual arrow argument a little bit more difficult. However, what is clear is that you do get a change in the structure of population. In 1600, like 80% of farmers could grow enough food on their farm to meet their household needs. Uh, most food that was sold was sold in local markets that would have catchment areas of about 10 kilometers. We should think not of one big national market, but of lots of little small markets. However, by 1850, most farmland was oriented towards the national market. Instead of tiny little bubbles of local markets, you would have one big bubble that was knit together by better roads, by uh, urban networks, and by London. Furthermore, you move from having a lot of single, farm, uh, single family farms to instead having this three-part subdivision of landlord who might be you know, absent, who owned all the lands, tenant farmer who, uh, you know, rented lands and had uh, some control over what they did, and uh, agricultural proletariat. Now, part of this we can see one of the key drivers of this change, What one of the things that I think is the key drivers of this change, the growth of the national market. As you get increased communications, as you get better roads, better canals, better communications, people are able to trade on a much larger scale. Instead of 800 small market towns like you had in the 17th century, now you have shops and a national retailing trade that allows people not to like go off as individual farmers and sell gigantic bags of wheat, but rather have uh, specialist middlemen who collect agricultural products and sell them on to shops that are open always. But I want to kind of scale this up. I want to abstract this. I want not just to rest on growth of the national market as the end explanation for things, because that doesn't take us all the way there. Instead, I want to insist that the big reason why this change happened, why you got a decreasing proportion of people working in agriculture, making the most food that Britain had ever seen, 
is because these structural changes made people work harder. I reference here Esther Bosrep, who we've talked about a lot. I'll just uh, say her argument in miniature so you can get it. Uh, rather than saying that when population increases, people die more often, Esther Bosrep says when population increases, people work harder. They're able to push out to new areas of agriculture and new techniques in agriculture that might produce the same amount but are harder. What you get in the 18th and 19th century is a switch to higher intensity farming. Things that are more difficult to do, things that take more labor, more care, more intelligence, and more knack. Um, there's a lot of, of, of stories about this. One is, say, fen drainage. Um, fens are swamps, basically, and you could drain them and make them into agricultural land, but it took a lot of work. The um, levees for the fens were made up of peat and would often collapse, so you needed to constantly go and fix them. You also had to get people to make the pumps and to work the pumps and all that. It was a pain in the butt. And the big story is, is that in the 18th and 19th century, agriculture becomes a bigger pain in the butt. However, the big distinction is who is it a pain in the butt for? One group of people are slaves. A big part of this story is that this Bozropian increase in effort is taking place not in Britain, but in America, in the Caribbean, where a bunch of stuff is being produced for the British market, sugar and cotton and indigo, that is being produced by the forced effort of slaves. You need slavery in America because America has a lot of free land. If you're just a farmer, you'll use the free land badly because it's easier to do that. If you want to actually get high-value crops, though, you need to force people to work. The other uh, bit of big effort that's coming is coal, cheap energy from coal. And this happens sooner than you think. One bit is liming and marling, which is a form of, of fertilizer, and that comes from burning stuff with coal. Another bit is that fen drainage that I talked about, draining the swamps. This happened through steam engines powered by coal. So then I just want to close with insisting on why this matters. I know that this has probably been one of the drier episodes that I've done for a while, but I think it's one of the more important. This shift is, for most people, one of the important markers of modernity. And if we care about modernity, we care about this shift. For Marx, the structural change in farm later made the industrial proletariat, which allowed there to be factory production, because it created people who, like us, work for a wage because they don't own property. Another way we can see this is that during this time period, the employer of last resort changes from agriculture to industry. It also changes the way that popular culture is organized because you lose the sense of rural community that used to be the locus of a lot of British life. Finally, it suggests a different kind of view of the changes that are happening. 
it is all too easy when you take Britain as the first modern nation to proclaim this sudden and triumphant story. The Industrial Revolution happened and everything changed. And that encourages us to tell these bad stories about genius inventors and, you know, special British, you know, genius. But really, the story is much slower and much weirder. It takes a really long time, and it's not just genius inventors. It's animals and plants and coal and the interactions between them. Before you can have a James Watt who will make a steam engine, you also need a system of slow economic growth based on newly productive agriculture. Thanks very much for listening to this episode of Making of Historian. If you like the show, rate and review us on iTunes, share us on social media, do all of those things that you do with things on the internet that you like. Thanks to Jonathan Lear for the music. He's on SoundCloud. Listen to him. And he's also on Bandcamp. Give him money on Bandcamp. He likes money. If you, you know, if it's Jonathan Lear's birthday, give him money. He really appreciates it. Also, thanks to, John, uh, to Duncan Barton, who did The Image. Um, thanks very much, and I'll see you guys either tomorrow or tonight when I will be talking about the changes in popular culture.